Let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Let's ask God to do what he's promised to do for his people when we come before him to hear us and to gladly, with an open hand, answer the prayers of his children. Father, we come to you this morning. Rejoice in the life we have been given because of Jesus, our Savior and King. We rejoice that he is alive. Having conquered sin and death, no grave can ever hold him again. We rejoice in this wonderful truth, and we long for the nations to know the abundant life found in Jesus. And that is why we are so heartbroken over the wars and violence taking place in Ukraine. And yet, Lord, we pray for believers in both Ukraine and Russia, that they might persevere in their faith, be bold to share the gospel, and to stand for righteousness. Father, we pray that you would bring an end to the war so that families can be reunited, churches, schools, and cities can be rebuilt. We pray for peace. Lord, give ear to our words. Consider our groaning. Give attention to the sound of our cry, our King and God, for to you do we pray. This morning, Lord, you hear our voices in song. Today we have prepared an offering of praise for you, and we wait expectantly for you. We are confident that you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell within you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers, but we, through the abundance of your steadfast love, can enter your house. And so we worship you with the deepest awe. Lead us, O Lord, in your righteousness, or else temptations and sin will conquer us. Make your way plain for us to follow. Help us to forsake lies and those who seek to destroy others with them. May the words of our mouth come from true hearts and bring life instead of curses. Remind, that all, remind us that all who rebel against you will be cast out, and yet all who take refuge in you will find comfort and rejoicing. Let us ever sing for joy and spread your protection over us, Lord, that all who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, you cover them with favor as with a shield. And as we worship you this morning, we are mindful of our brethren who are not with us due to sickness. We ask for your healing grace. For those with burdens, whether they be financial hardships, tough decisions, perhaps as parents of wayward children, we pray that you would grant them wisdom and faith. For those struggling against besetting sins, we ask that you would give them victory. For those who are rejoicing, let us rejoice with them and weep with those who weep. Teach us how better to bear one another's burdens, Lord. And we pray even now for spiritual fruit and purity in the life of redeeming grace. 
We pray that you would be with Josh as he proclaims your word in boldness and conviction. We pray for the churches of Rapid City, Lord, that you would work to preserve your name and witness. And even, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Anderson, Indiana, at Edgewood Baptist Church, at Hope Church, at Grace, and at Southern Heights. Let Andy and Jamie and Daniel and Matthew, as they preach your word, Lord, let it go forth over your people, bringing hope and grace. We're also mindful, as the Scriptures instructs us to do, to pray for those who have leadership over us in the public sphere, Lord, whether it's school boards to city and county government, to our legislators and governor and peer, to Washington, we ask that you would turn their hearts to yourself so that they might have the wisdom to understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. Now, Father, we thank you for the privilege to be called your children. Oh, how you love us. You've chosen us before the foundation of the earth that we should be holy and blameless before you. Our greatest joy is to call you Father. Help us even today to do your will, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you would open your copy of the Scriptures and join me this morning in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. We're going to read through a lengthy portion of this chapter. It's a, it's a long chapter. We're going to read through this, and then I hope that we will, <clears throat> as we work through it, you have a handout. Gives you a little bit of direction of where we're going. This morning we're going to talk about a resurrection that um, kind of forecasts an even greater resurrection, the one that we've been singing about all morning, and that is Jesus' resurrection. And so we're going to hear about an event that took place in John's Gospel shortly before Jesus' own suffering. So if you have your place there in John 11, please follow along as I read from God's Word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. 
But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin and said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them, console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she met him. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard of it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he write its truths upon our hearts. Lord, as we looked to your word this morning, grant us understanding. Even more, grant us faith to believe that you indeed are the resurrection and the life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You see in the first 19 verses that there's a real death being described here, Lazarus. But before we can talk about Lazarus, I want to back up a little bit and tell you where this falls in Jesus' ministry. John's gospel has chronicled several encounters between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. There's a, a dynamic that is upsetting the status quo, and there is a great rending, as it were, of the social fabric. These men are threatened by Jesus, his following, and the things that he is saying and doing. John chapter 10 shows us that Jesus was teaching in the temple. He was there during the winter months and uh, for the Feast of Dedication. But he was confronted there, and his life was yet once again threatened. And so, as John 10 closes, Jesus leaves Jerusalem for the safe haven across the Jordan River to the place where John had been baptizing prior. And there he was serving the mission of sharing the gospel and teaching and healing until he received this message for some friends. John tells us a little bit about the family. He understands that his readers would have probably heard these stories before about Lazarus being raised from the dead, about Mary anointing Jesus' feet with this very expensive perfume and actually wiping his feet with her hair. But he wants his readers to know this is how it happened. 
In John chapter 12, he identifies Lazarus as the one whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so we would think, and I think rightly so, that chapter 11 doesn't just fit the story, but it actually did, these events, Lazarus' resurrection, did take place before the events of chapter 12. You can almost hear in the sisters' message to Jesus, they appeal to him as their sovereign, Lord, Lazarus is sick. We wouldn't bother you if this wasn't serious, but the need is real. And we know that you care about him, so please come and heal him. Notice Jesus' response. At first blush, it might look like Jesus is a little standoffish, right? Uh, It's not that big of a deal. It's not a sickness that's going to lead to death. Well, and we read and we read that he does die. So does that mean that Jesus is incompetent or unloving? He can raise the dead, but he doesn't know the future. No, we need to do a little work here. Jesus isn't saying that Lazarus won't die because he does. And we don't believe that Jesus can heal the sick, but he doesn't know the future. The best way to understand this response that Jesus gives is to keep this entire statement together in verse 4. The goal of Lazarus' sickness, the end of his sickness, won't stop in death. In other words, yes, he is sick, but there is a purpose to this sickness that's not just going to end in death. It will result in the glory of God, in particular, that Jesus himself would be glorified through Lazarus's illness. And I want you to understand something here. We often, we sing songs of glorifying God, and we, we think of praising him and making much of his name. But John actually, if you study this out in his gospel, uses the word glorify more often to describe not giving praise to God, but of God like unfolding the mystery of re- revealing who he is to the world that he created. It's a self-disclosure. It's it's God letting us peek behind the curtain of eternity and discovering that the, the glory of God, the unfolding revelation of God, is that Jesus is truly the Son of God, of the very nature of God. And so... We see this. You go back to John chapter 1. Let's, let's just use our thumbs for a moment here. John chapter 1, and, and we read this statement. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John is, the Apostle John, is making it clear that the prophet John understood who Jesus was and that the purpose of John, the apostle's gospel, is that we would know who the father is by knowing who his son is. Jesus, in John 5, called 
God his Father, making himself equal with God. In John chapter 8, Jesus declared himself to be eternal with the Father. Before Abraham was, I am, he says. In John 10, Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah that the Jews looked forward to. And not just of the line of David, but one with God, of the same nature as God. And so yet again in John 11, Jesus is stating that God is revealing himself to the world through the Son. This is so important because if you dismiss Jesus, then you will not know the Father. And what Jesus does is he takes this moment of of loss, he takes this moment of seriousness in the life of this family, and he uses it not as a platform selfishly, but he places Lazarus' illness and subsequent death in relationship to God's point of view. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all things have their yes and amen in Christ. Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, in him all the promises of God find their yes. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. What's interesting to me on a human level is that the death of Lazarus and even the death of Jesus reveal to us that suffering is the lot of the Christian in this world. I know there's a lot of teachers out there on TV or the radio or the web that are describing this fact that if we would have enough faith that we could heal ourselves, we would be exempt from taxes, we, we'd have so much money we wouldn't know what to do with it, we just need more faith. And let me just stand in stark opposition to that heresy and tell you the truth. The Christian life is a cross-bearing life. It's not cruise control. The Christian life is, is not a life. True Christianity doesn't teach that the gospel is a cure, a vaccine, or a preventative against suffering. It says just the opposite. As we identify with the Son, we will suffer like the Son did. So every Christian should assume or expect that we will suffer, not be surprised by it. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that we like the spot, that it's comfortable. But don't think for a moment that what is happening to you, Christian, brother, sister, is unique. Or that God is not moved by it. It's difficult for us to think this way, which is why we must trust God's word. Because it tells us that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our own ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. Now, let me just tell you, look at verse 5. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, us that Jesus loved this family. So in his delay, let us not assume for a moment that the two extra days were wasted time, were negligence, Jesus is dusting furniture while there's a crisis over in Bethany. Let's not think that it was indifference on his part. 
In fact, many commentators speculate that the distance from where they were to where Jesus was would have been like this. The messengers were en route to Jesus, and Lazarus died before they, received, they found Jesus. That, that the two-day delay wasn't negligence on Jesus' part, but it was just the distance, this great distance. In any event, what we do understand is that Jesus clearly states all this is taking place according to the divine plan of God. So that Jesus would be revealed as from the Father. It wasn't a lack of love that kept Jesus there. It was the Father's will. And this, again, brings a point of application to us. Jesus' actions are always determined by the Father, not the desires of people. And as a reminder for myself, okay, this week, thinking about this, if I get frustrated that God isn't working according to my time frame, we would do well to consider this story and these events because God is sovereignly working in our lives for his glory to reveal to the world who he is. And therefore, the Bible makes no secret at times that God delayed his response to prayer or he delayed intervening on behalf of his people. That means these delays are a part of our Christian experience They're instructive to us. They're not to be simply endured like waiting at the license branch to get you a new license. No, it is a time in which God is working in us to develop faith, perseverance, trust. And we can be confident that God is never late. He is always on time. We know that God often delays his actions and Peter tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God's mercy with this world isn't to see how many more people can be hurt by the world, but to see how many more people can be coming to faith in Christ in his enduring mercies. He does what he does because of his wise plan to bring glory to himself and to do good for his children. It would do us well to adopt the same point of view in relationship to our own suffering. We think of how long do we have to suffer then, Lord? How long do we have to intercede for someone who we've been witnessing and sharing the gospel with or a child or family, a coworker, neighbor, I think Jesus addressed this concern in Luke 18. God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You see, more important to God and Jesus then simply alleviating Lazarus' suffering is this. God sees people, and he desires to strengthen the faith of this family and his own disciples. 
And so he is going to let this ride in order that he can do what he intends to do. And this, again, is instructive to us. God is more concerned with growing our faith than bringing comfort to our lives. Thankfully, in many cases, he does both, right? But we are responsible to believe even as we suffer. We know his character is good. We know that he is ultimately working things out for his glory in our good. And I think what can be very helpful for us when we are in a deep season of suffering or uncertainty and the life that we've been living is just so torn up and everything is a mess. It's like moving and there's boxes everywhere. And where do you start? And how long will it be like this? Why can't things just be settled and calm and easy? I think catechism can help us understand the teaching of Scripture. It it grounds us in its truths. And I think it becomes especially helpful when circumstances challenge us. So I have a suggestion for you. Go out and download a free copy of the Heidelberg Catechism today. It's a document that was written, I think, in 1563. It's been used by the church for centuries, and it's so helpful. Just listen to these first two questions of the catechism. Now, if you don't know what the word catechism is, it's a teaching tool. So you start with a question, and then you get an answer. The answer in the Heidelberg Catechism is rooted in Scripture. So here's the question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Your bank account? Your family? South Canyon? Your job, your identity. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. I mean, wouldn't that be a statement to make? How many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? That's the second question. Three things. First, what makes it comfort to know this truth is that the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a redemption. Place everything in light of the cross. What you deserved, what you were given, it produces a response. That can make you weather any storm in life. We don't have time this morning, but I would encourage you to take some this afternoon. Footnote this. Read John chapter 5 verses 19 through 29, it's almost like Jesus is predicting there what he does here in chapter 11. A testimony 
to God's revelation of himself through his son. What we see here is that resurrection is kind of known to the world only through the scriptures. Paganism is without the resurrection hope. Greek philosophy taught the immortality of the soul. The soul was considered evil, uh, like immaterial. It was enduring and it was untouchable. The body was evil. And what Christian teaching does is it shows one's not bad and the other good, but both will be redeemed. Both will be restored by God. We see that raising of the dead is rare in the Old Testament. It only occurred four times. Elijah raised the widow's son. Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. And then some guy was thrown into a tomb, and his body touched Elisha's bones, and he came back to life. And then you have this strange story of the witch at Endor. This isn't, you know, like... He-Man and the Masters of the Universe kind of stuff, right? But she was able to bring back Samuel from the dead. But Jesus, Jesus is about to do something that will turn everything on its head. He is going to raise Lazarus, and he is going to show to the world the power that he alone possesses. The disciples are concerned that Jesus is going to go back to the place where he fled from just a few verses before in chapter 10. They know that the, Jesus is af- the, the Jews are after Jesus and want to stone him. Thomas speaks up, and he's kind of speaking for all of them, like, why would you do this? Okay, if you're serious about it, then guys, let's just all go with him. Let's follow him. And I think this is what Jesus understood. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For some of us, it will unfold more quickly. Pressure at work to be known as a follower of Jesus, to come to church on a Sunday morning rather than being outside. This whole idea of the resurrection and Easter, I mean, everybody knows it's Cadbury eggs, it's chocolate, Reese's peanut butter eggs. You know, it's, it's, it's about candy, it's fun, nostalgia, it's about the kids. But this is just ridiculous. You may take a little flack for that at work. But Jesus wants his disciples to know something. Guys, you know, in a day before electricity, there's 12 hours to work. And you can see what you're doing when there's light. And so I want you guys to know something. As long as I am doing my Father's will, I am safe. I want you to know something. As long as you are with me doing my Father's will, you are safe. And I want you to know that we have a work to do. And so while there's time to do it, let's not be lazy. Let's get to the task. And then he ultimately has to rebuke them in verses 14 and 15 because they don't get what he's saying. So as we jump to the second section, it's pretty short here, verses 20 through 37, there's a real hope. And what we see, where we see that is when Jesus interacts with Martha. Looking again at this passage, she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, verse 21, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't think Martha's saying, Lord, you can raise Jesus from the dead. I think what she's saying is, I know you have access to the Father that 
we would all dream of having. And I know that you can pray and ask God to do things, and he can and will respond to you. But I'm not quite sure that she's getting the resurrection, and the reason why I say that is because of Jesus' response. Your brother will rise again. And she quickly interrupts him and says, yes, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Yes, this was a Jewish understanding that at the end of the age that God himself would raise the dead. The righteous would go into eternal life and the wicked would go into eternal suffering. And that's the point that she's referring to. And yet Jesus is like, no, no. I want you to think of something else. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, this may be a little bit in the weeds. I beg your indulgence just for a moment. Jesus isn't trying to comfort Martha with some Christian platitudes like we often do. I don't mean this in a platitude way, but when we're at a funeral, right? And we're trying to comfort someone who's grieving the loss of a loved one, we say, Praise the Lord, they're with Jesus. And we have this confidence that we will see them again. This isn't what Jesus is saying to Martha here. Jesus is saying, you're right, there is a resurrection of the dead. And let me tell you something, God has given me the authority to raise the dead. Not just bringing someone back from the dead, like in Lazarus' case. But I will raise all the dead. I will be the judge who determines eternity or judgment, life or death. I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Two separate things that Jesus marries together. He alone is declaring under the express command of the Father that he, Jesus, would raise the dead on the last day. So here's Jesus. He's trying to take Martha, her abstract faith, and he's trying to personalize a belief in him that he alone can provide life for Lazarus. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Bread from heaven. He feeds these people with a sack lunch. And he says, I am the bread of life. Now, he is saying that I am also the resurrection and the life. There's no life apart from Jesus. Do you hear me this morning? There is no life apart from Jesus, either here in this world or in the next. And when Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this, in verse 26... He isn't asking her if she believes he's about to raise Lazarus. Rather, do you now have an abstract theology that is rooted now personally in me? Do you trust me, Martha, as the only source of eternal life? And this is, I think, what makes her response so profound. She does believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is not only the Christ, she says, but he, she also adds, he is the source of all light and life. You are the son of God, and you are bringing light and life into this world. And so 
We have this real hope that is taking place in Martha's life. And now we see in verses 38 through 44 a real resurrection. Jesus goes to the tomb. He sees people weeping, and as Mary comes to him, she asks the same question that Martha did. And Jesus is, again, we see his humanity as he weeps. And yet we see this, also, this other dynamic that people are saying like, okay, do you remember in John 9? We heard the stories of what Jesus did in Jerusalem. He, he healed this guy that had been blind from his birth. No surgeries. He healed him. Now, if only he had been here two days earlier, he probably should have been able to keep this guy from dying. Almost like wringing their hands, but now it's too late. He is dead, and there's no hope for him. Kind of makes you wonder, why do bad things happen to good people? Like, is God some kind of mean-spirited deity that likes to just mess with his people, get their lives all helter-skelter, and then, you know, just to see how they're going to respond? God's not like that. But it is a fair question to ask, why does a good God allow evil to be in the world? Why do we see prejudice? Why do we see violence? Why do we see abuse, oppression, war, and sickness, and death? It's one of the most common questions leveled against Christianity. It's one of the strongest objections to the fact that there is a good God rather than by some accident all this has come about and whatever happens, happens. We really have no meaning or purpose in life, and so you try to suck out of it all that you can and just take care of yourself. And yet the Scriptures tell us that our God is good and he's all-powerful. And yet the problem is we see these people raising the question in verse 37, right? If he's good and powerful, then why didn't he do something? Isn't healing the blind a good thing? Isn't healing someone who is sick a good thing? Isn't preventing someone from dying a good thing? If Jesus is good and does good, then why didn't he do this good thing? Well, Jesus' answer is given by none other than himself. And he reveals it in two parts. Verse 4, going back to earlier in the chapter, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. First, and second, he answers it here in his prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. In short, in the midst of our suffering, God reveals himself through his son in order that Jesus may be glorified by those who believe on him. And he will use painful things. Lazarus' death... He will even use wicked men, Caiaphas, the high priest. His statement is, we will kill this guy in order to save ourselves and our power. God will use painful things and wicked men to accomplish his purposes. But don't think for a moment that he is uncaring about human suffering. We see over and over in this text that he loved this family. Verse 3, 5, 21 through 26, 33 through 35. John, as a disciple of Jesus, testified to his own observations. Jesus wept. 
It means that Jesus' love was real and observable. He loved sinners. He loves sinners. We see his tenderness as he speaks privately to both of these sisters, comforting her. This story of Lazarus' death shows us that God is involved in our lives, that he cares for his people, that he knows them and their suffering. I wonder if you have felt alone. This season, everybody else is gathering with their friends, their families, and you found yourself alone, struggling with your life and what it means to follow Christ. I just encourage you to once again to go back to what that suggestion, to memorize God's words so that you would know the truth when the circumstances are telling you something different. What is your only comfort in life and death? And how many things are required for you to know this comfort? So as we come to the end of the passage, we see that this man, Lazarus, was raised. And Jesus is very clear that he wants everybody to know that this man who had been dead is alive. So we, we get to this, and they're, they're warning Jesus, don't open the tomb. Unlike the Egyptians, they didn't um, you know, drain the organs and the blood and then put all these things back into it and preserve the body in embalmment. The Jews would bury that very day. And so four days, it would be ripe. And they're warning Jesus about that. But he demands that the stone is rolled away, the tomb is opened, and then he calls Lazarus forth. And this man who had died came out. Look at verse 44. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips, his faith wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. Simply as I can. Jesus' words to unbind Lazarus, to untie him of these grave clothes, was a picture of the reality of life. Living people don't look like death. We as Christians have life abundantly, Jesus said. We ought to not look like the death of the world around us. And I'm talking about a fake joy where you're always smiling and happy and, you know, someone can kick you in the shins and you just utter a blessing over them. I'm talking about a settled peace and confidence that all things indeed are working together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. There's some similarities and differences between the death of Lazarus and the death of Jesus that we are celebrating. Lazarus died from an illness. Jesus died for our sins. Lazarus was raised by Jesus, and Jesus was raised by the Father. Lazarus eventually died again. Jesus' resurrection to a glorified body that could walk through walls, yet he could still eat and drink and be touched and handled, and he will and has not and will not ever die again. Our God is alive. Lazarus' resurrection demonstrated the power of God through Jesus, that Jesus, in fact, was divine Son of God. 
Jesus' resurrection guarantees the life to all those who are his. Because he lives, we live. So looking at the final section here, verses 41 or 45 through 54, there's this response, okay? Everything Jesus does is not by accident, and it is not simply to draw attention. He always does things in order to drive a point home and to call people to an action. And what we see here is as Lazarus is resurrection, uh, verse 45, that many believed in Jesus, but some went running back to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and told them what Jesus had done. And so you have a contrast with God's goodness on display. There's always a mixed response to it. The parable of the soils. Some believe, others reject. Why is this? Jesus is presenting himself as the, the key holder to eternal life. The only way to know God and the only way to know the forgiveness that God provides for in Jesus. And yet people reject him. Why is that? What causes some to believe and others to hate? Why did Cain kill Abel? Why did the nations hate Israel? Why did Jesus repeatedly predict his own death to the disciples? The scriptures tell us the fault is not with God, it is with human hearts. We are the problem. Our hearts are sinful and rebellious, which explains how these religious leaders, men clothed in the garments of righteousness from a human level, were willing to kill the very Son of God rather than believe in him as Mary and Martha and the disciples did. Notice verse 57. We didn't read it, but I just want to bring your attention to it. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, being Jesus, was, that person should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is a common theme with these guys. They want to know where Jesus is, not who Jesus is. Don't let that be true of you. A person who is not interested in knowing who Jesus is. They're not interested in believing on him, only in destroying him. Verse 48 reveals how they had set themselves up as sovereign rather than God. They called it our place and our nation. They were protective of what they perceived as their turf. And Jesus was messing with that. He was a threat. Kind of like... A dictator we all are seeing in the headlines today. They're willing to kill and remove anyone who was a threat to their power. The scriptures tell us clearly who Jesus is. Martha makes this very clear. You are the Messiah of the line of David, heir to the throne of Israel, the king through which all the nations will come one day and bow before and worship on your holy hill. You are that king and you are the son of God. God and man in one. This is who Jesus is. We as Christians are unashamed of this. He makes dead people come to life, both 
physically in the case of Lazarus and spiritually as in my testimony and yours if you're a member of South Canyon Church. He has made you alive. He loves sinners. He came to minister and to deliver us from death. And so we simply plead with people to cry out for the forgiveness of sins, to turn and trust in Christ. And in spite of the, God's grace, the sad reality is due to the hardness of human hearts, people will reject. But we must continue to pray. We must continue to share the word. We must continue to call forth repentance. God's ultimate plan is to reveal his glory and to do good to his children. And it is by faith in Jesus as the one who alone is the resurrection and the life that we can be delivered from death. So the question this morning is very simple. It all builds to this. Do you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for the giver of eternal life? By raising Lazarus from the dead, the readers of John's Gospels can have every confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to close by reading the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you believe this, would you stand with me? Amen. God, we give you all glory and praise today. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. What we see in Lazarus' life that was played out in your own, a death and a resurrection, what we see in the struggle of the flesh to accept things that are beyond ourselves, to trust in God, and to have evidence that you are worthy and trustworthy from Scripture, God, I simply pray that you would call forth more faith, more obedience from your people, and that in your mercy and grace, you would bring yet many more into the family of God, that they too may say wholeheartedly, I believe in God the Father, in Christ Jesus, his only Son, and in his Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body, the forgiveness of sins, and of life everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.